Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to the season premiere episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most bizarre, the most newsworthy, and the most high-profile homicide cases occurring in Maryland are discussed and profiled and examined. This season, I can't believe we're already in season four, and before I go any further, I want to personally thank my listeners who tune in to all of my research, uh, all my listeners, not just in the United States, but all over the world. I thank you because I know I'm not the only one who's into true crime real heavy, but I feel like, you know, I know Merlin. I mean, and I know particularly in Baltimore, it's been in the lead with the number of homicides that we have here. And it seems like a lot of the times, most of these homicides that are heinous, they get unnoticed or they don't really get the national attention that other crimes do or other um, homicides do. I mean, I guess we Baltimoreans are immune to it. It, it. It's almost like it don't even affect us that much when we hear about, you know, somebody get killed or if a homicide or a murder or something like that because it's so commonplace, you know. Murder is so common in Maryland that it, it just couldn't just be like, oh, we have some high-profile murders, homicides, like in this state. I mean, people that's not from around here, they really don't believe that in particularly Baltimore City, that's almost like a homicide a day. They really don't believe that. I mean, I had to literally, it's so many homicides that I had to literally narrow them down to categories or seasons. Like in season one, we discussed like 10 notorious homicide cases where children were murdered, where children were the victims. In season two, we discussed 10 cases where the killers were teens or teenagers. They were like kids themselves. Last season, season three, we discussed relationship killers or husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend types of murders or homicides. Like those type of murders was profiled. Now for this season, we're doing something different. So for this season, season four, murder, murder, suicide cases or cases basically where the killer, like they killed somebody then after that, they killed themselves. Now, on this episode, we starting off with the murder-suicide of Christopher Allen Wood. And of course, I'm still profiling an unsolved homicide each week, each episode that needs special attention. And <clears throat> last season, the episodes were uh, the unsolved homicides. We focused on 10 transgenders that were uh, uh, brutally murdered in state of Maryland that are unsolved and for this particular episode the unsolved homicide is the shooting death of 22 year 22 year old Laurel Amos I'm gonna try to get through this I'm kind of a little bit under the weather but I'm gonna try to get through this tonight now um, depression anxiety the blues whatever you want to call it for some people, when they feel bad or they feel depressed, it's not like a feeling where you feel like not right, like for a minute or even a day or two, or it's like, it's not like how you feel bad or whatever, and you can just move on with your life um, later on, you know, and it doesn't really affect you. But for some people, 
depression ain't no joke, like for real. And it's something that they struggle with like on a daily basis. And the answer isn't found in normal satisfa satisfying activities like going on vacations or spending time with your friends or your family or spending time with loved ones. Things that like, you know, normal people do to, I guess, make them feel joy or whatever. For some people, just day-to-day -day living can be complicated. And it can be a struggle just to get out of the bed. It's like having money doesn't help. Having, uh, you know, money that doesn't make the feelings of depression go away. Some of the richest people in the world have committed suicide. I mean, having a supportive family doesn't make the feelings go away. Personal achievement or uh, achieving goals doesn't make the feelings of despair and gloom and this misery they doesn't that none of nothing makes it go away even a relationship with God doesn't make you feel better you talk to a doctor you talk to a shrink they don't do nothing but take notes and prescribe drugs drugs that numbs the shit out of you to the point where now you feel nothing completely void of all emotion in the tragic murder suicide case of Christopher Wood one can only imagine how severe his depression and anxiety really was According to his wife's blog post on Facebook, her husband suffered through depression throughout most of his life and throughout their marriage. Known as Francie, Christopher's wife, she herself has spent her childhood growing up in Middletown and Frederick County, where her parents were the founding members of the Holy Family Catholic community in Middletown. She graduated from Middletown High School in 1994 before going on to Hood College. After they were married, Chris got a job at CSX Corporation in Baltimore as a sales accountant that handled the transportation of chemicals and fertilizer. Christopher, he made $96,000 a year, which in my opinion, that wasn't too bad. I've done worse, much worse. I mean, in my opinion, it just wasn't that bad. But after they had their first child, his wife, she quit her job and she became a full-time stay-at-home mom. The family they made their home in Jacksonville, Florida. The whole time, Christopher struggled with his mental state and their finances. Living in Florida wasn't working out, so the family decided to move back to Middletown in Frederick County, Maryland. This time, Christopher worked for CSX in New Jersey during the week while his wife stayed at home with the kids. In her blog on Facebook, she wrote about how she would miss her husband's help with the kids and his silliness and everything around the house, but at least they could all be happy now because they were surrounded by old friends and family and a strong faith-based community. Christopher and his wife joined the Holy Family Catholic Community Church and Francie, in addition to being a stay-at-home mom, she started filling up her time by volunteering, volunteering at the church to teach liturgy to the young kids there. She also helped plan all the summer vacations and she taught Bible school and she agreed to staff the nursery in the parish. In his spare time, Chris coached a soccer, a youth soccer team. But even with the $96,000 a year job, even with the extracurricular activities going on, even with the peaceful surroundings of Middletown, which was virtually crime free, None of that helped Christopher's mental state or seemed to put a dent in their financial struggles. For example, they moved to Maryland because they couldn't make the payments on the house in Florida. CSX had made plans to buy it, 
but that didn't happen and for foreclosure proceedings had started in October of 2007. The family traveled to West Virginia for a short time after they left Florida, but that didn't work out either. Finally, his wife decided that maybe, just maybe, they needed to be closer to home, closer to the church, closer to where she grew up, closer to family, closer to the community environment that they had been raised in. After the move back to Maryland, they started renting a house in the first block of Washington Street. Frances enrolled five-year-old Chandler in Middletown Primary School, while her son, four-year-old Gavin, and two-year-old daughter, Fiona, were students at Middletown Methodist Church Preschool. Francie busied herself with volunteering, being a good mother, and being a good wife. She decorated the yellow house on the corner with for all the holidays that were there. I mean, Halloween, she did it for Christmas, St. Patrick's Day. She did all that, you name it, and she played her role well. She was super nice to people, all her neighbors said. Christopher continued to struggle with his depression and his anxiety issues. He saw doctors. They gave him more drugs. Seven different drugs to be exact. He was prescribed, I'm going to try my best with the name of these pills. He was prescribed oxycodone. He was prescribed enstetophamine for a pain disorder. He was prescribed zolpidine because he couldn't sleep. Then he was prescribed alfazolam because he had panic attacks. Then to finally treat his depression and anxiety, he was prescribed a cocktail of zolpidine, northphalite, northphalene something. Let me see, amtriptyline and buprenorphine, taken all in conjunction with all the other pills all at the same time. I know I struggled with the, the name of them pills, but forgive me. I mean, how is this conducive to treatment? Doctors, where you at? Make me understand. How, make this make sense. And it, it's a miracle he didn't overdose on any of the meds that he was prescribed. But all were legally prescribed. All the doctors knew what he was taking. And it wasn't like he was out looking for pills on the street either. I mean, either way, on the afternoon of Saturday, April the 16th, 2009, all of those meds mixed together proved to have disastrous results. Normally, Frances talked to her parents almost every day on the phone, and when her father hadn't heard from her, the next morning, around 5 a.m., he decided to go to their home. After he knocked on the front door and didn't get a response, he forced the door open, and what he found inside, I'm sure he was 100% not ready for. Inside the home lay the bodies of his, of his, of his daughter, 33-year-old Frances Bilotti Wood, her five-year, their five, her five-year-old son Chandler Wood, her four-year-old son Gavin Wood, and her two-year-old daughter Fiona Wood. Also inside the home was the body of 34-year-old Christopher Allen Wood. Francis' father immediately called 911, and when paramedics arrived at the home, they all were pronounced dead. A medical examiner later determined that Christopher had shot his wife and their daughter as they slept in their master bed together. Then, as they slept in their, their beds still wearing their pajamas, 
he shot his two-year-old son he shot his two sons in a separate bedroom that they shared together shot with a small 25 caliber pistol Francis and Chandler had been shot twice in the head Gavin had been shot three times and the baby Fiona had been shot once and to, to make this a little weird after they were all shot Christopher then used a pruning saw and a knife to slash their throats almost to the point of decapitation. After killing his family, Christopher wrote six suicide notes and scattered them all throughout the house. He wrote a note to his wife saying how ironically, how much he truly loved her, but guess what? They never should have gotten married with her, him being so mentally ill. He wrote to his three children telling them how much he loved them and how sorry he was. A fifth note he wrote to his mother, father, and his sister apologizing for his actions. He wrote about how much he loved his family and how he probably, most likely, was going to hell for what he did. His final note was written to anybody in general who would listen and wonder how could he do such a thing. He wrote about how depressed he had been his whole life, how he had tried to get help, but all the meds and the doctors just made everything worse. Apparently, he even spent the night in the house with, the, with their dead bodies because a babysitter came to the house the next morning on April 17th around 9 o'clock in the morning to confirm if she would still be watching the kids that night while he and his wife went to a church meeting. The babysitter later told the detectives that Christopher was calm, he was normal, and nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary with him. But he canceled the appointment, basically telling her that they wouldn't be needing her services. She thought like nothing of it, but as soon as she left, Christopher sat on the foot of his bed where his dead wife and daughter laid. Then he took a different gun, a shotgun. He put the barrel of the gun in his mouth pulled the trigger, and ended his misery and suffering. The couple had only been in Maryland for four months. Police found the shotgun next to his body, and later, the gun he used to kill his family was found inside a container in the kitchen. The police also found other guns that were throughout the house. When the Frederick County Sheriff heard the only, I repeat, the only homicide in Middletown in at least 20 years, which is rare for Maryland. He released a comment to the press that read, it was the worst, most horrific event I've seen in all my years. And he had been the sheriff for over 20 years. A member of the press blurted out, asked the sheriff if it was true that the kids were decapitated. And he asked if the kids' throat were cut almost to the point that their heads were cut off. The sheriff's exact words were, Listen, I really don't know what this purpose serves to the public. I will simply answer yes. Ugh. According to the press, the couple was $460,000 in debt. They couldn't sell their house in Florida. There was literally no history of domestic violence between them at all. Nothing. No warning signs other than his years of depression. Now... The reason why this case was notorious in Maryland because depression can be like a slow death. Who wants to live miserable every day? Who wants to live under 
prescribe drugs every day just to feel an ounce of joy. That's got to be a brutal way to live. Um, I, you know, can almost relate a little bit, but I don't understand what would be the purpose of taking out your whole family if you're depressed. I mean, sometimes people that commit suicide think that, well, maybe my family would have to grow up without me and the pain of me being gone or whatever, but wow. I mean, you, the baby didn't even have a chance. She didn't even know you. So it's like, what would be the purpose of taking out your entire family? You know, taking out yourself, I can get that, but your whole family? And he had to have been, you know, something other than depressed or besides that, in addition to that, to why would you cut their throats post, you know, while they've already died? I feel sorry for, you know, his family, her family. Um, I can't even imagine to be in that type of pain that would make me or make anybody would want to do that. And then the shotgun, I, I used to do a crime scene cleanup. I, I seen what a shotgun can, can do. It's not easy killing yourself that way. He would have had to put the his foot on the trigger to, to, to kill himself. That's somebody who meant that. That's not a cry for help. That's somebody who really wanted to leave this earth. I mean, it also proves that money doesn't buy happiness. I mean, to me, $96,000 may not be a lot of money to a lot of people, but I grew up poor, and I could have made a living with $96,000 a year for a family of four. You know, I don't understand the debt issues, but, um, you know, I just feel like doctors just ought to be ashamed of themselves in this case. Y'all knew what he was taking. What's the purpose of people prescribing a pill for everything, especially psychiatrists? What happens to sitting down and listening to a person? You know, I just, I just, this case really, I remember when it happened. I remember thinking, wow, um, this is a small town in, in Frederick County that nothing ever happens. But this crime completely shook up that town. And they talked about this for months. You know, his wife. He, she possibly would have moved on if he committed suicide. You never know. His kids would have grew up. You know, it just, it, it's just very unfortunate that something like this happened. This episode's Unsolved Homicide is the shooting death of 22-year-old Laurel Amos. Now, people who ain't from Baltimore literally don't believe me when I tell them you can be minding your own business have no beef with nobody, be living a good life, healthy, young, vibrant, full of plans, full of goals, full of dreams, all of that, living your life right. But in Baltimore, you can do all these things and be alive one minute and dead the next simply because you are in Baltimore in the wrong place at the wrong time. It don't matter if you're a child, it don't matter if you're a baby. It don't matter if you're a woman. It don't matter if you're an elderly person. It don't matter whoever. Bullets don't have a name. And simply put, the, your odds of being a victim of a shooting in Baltimore and be more, no matter what you're doing, is higher than any other major cities. Fight me on that later. Seriously. Because if it ain't true, then <clears throat> prove me wrong. Those of us that live in Be more know exactly what I'm talking about. 
most of this stuff don't even make the news. That's what happened in the case of 22-year-old Laurel Ashlyn Amos. Laurel, a 2008 graduate of Kenwood High School, had done everything right. Described by her friends and family as a peacemaker, Laurel was a member of the National Honor Society at Kenwood High and was elected as class president of her class all four years of high school. Known as Diva to her friends and family, after graduating high school, Laurel remained in a relationship with her high school sweetheart. The couple got engaged and together they became the parents of a one-year-old boy. Laurel got a job as a bank teller at the SunTrust Bank in Essex, where she excelled. The couple made their home in Rosedale. They lived together, raised their son, planned their wedding, minded their own business, had no enemies. Labor Day weekend in Baltimore City. Oh my God. I mean, on Labor Day weekend of 2012, 16 people got shot. I'm going to say that again. On Labor Day weekend of 2012, 16 people got shot. Six of them died. I don't know where it's like AOLs, but I don't know what it is about holidays, but Memorial Day weekend, 4th of July, Labor Day weekend, New Year's Eve, it's like it's almost inevitable somebody gets shot in Beemore. And Labor Day weekend in September of 2012 proved to deliver just like they always do. On Sunday, September 2nd, 2012, Laurel and her fiance had been at a family party at a row home in the 4800 block of the Alameda in Northeast Baltimore. Between 80 and 100 people were at this party earlier and a little after 2 a.m. the party was over and Laurel was out in the front yard helping to clean up after the party. Suddenly, a block away in the 4800 block of the Alameda in Northeast Baltimore, Two cars drive past, shots ring out like they normally do in Beemore City, and one of those bullets struck Laurel. She was hit once in her chest, and she collapsed in the front yard and was killed almost instantly. Here one minute, gone the next. Hearing the shots, Laurel's fiancé rushed outside and saw her lying on the ground. He was holding her heart, and it was ironic because she had a big heart, her aunt later commented to reporters for the Baltimore Sun. 911 was called, and paramedics rushed the young mother to John Hopkins Hospital, but it was too late. The bullet had entered her chest, traveled throughout her body, and damaged major arteries, and she was pronounced dead less than an hour after being shot. Laurel was the light of her family's life and completely dedicated to her son. Like most new mothers, she was reportedly very picky about who she would even let babysit her son, and she only let his grandparents babysit. Always a leader, Laurel had been a Girl Scout beginning in elementary school, where she continued all the way through high school graduation. She heavily inspired other people and was very popular and active in high school where she was on the volleyball team. She excelled at so many things and was more mature than her years. You met her, came in contact with her, you'd love her. She was that type of person, her mother told reporters for the Baltimore Sun. 
more than 700 people went to her funeral at St. Stephen's AME Church in Essex. Her fiance spoke and said that the five years that he spent with Laurel were the best five years of his life. The police don't think that Laurel was the target of whoever shot her, but they do think that the shooter was targeting a person who was at the party, but they have nothing else. The not having no information or nothing is one of the most frustrating things. That's like, it's, it's the most frustrating parts about what the families of victims of homicides feel. They feel like this happened in front of tens of, like, tons of people. So how can you not have nothing? I want whoever you are off, whoever you are off the street, like my daughter is gone, I want you gone inside the walls. That's what Laurel's mother told the press. A year goes by, nothing. Another year goes by and Laurel's mother is interviewed again. She was surrounded by family at a family party. Two, car two cars go by, shots ring out, and my daughter is hit. Nobody knows nothing. We're just trying to find out who took my child's life. That's my only child, she pleaded. We don't want this to, to be faded out because that's not how my daughter was. She was a people person, well-loved, well-liked, and this wasn't fair to her. We're not going to just let her life be gone. We want to keep her memory alive, she continued. You can run, but you can't hide, so you need to turn yourself in. Be strong about the situation. Be responsible and turn yourself in, her father added. So this one sounds like to me, somebody probably knew, somebody probably in a so-called family, they know something, but ain't saying nothing. A case like this, it could be anybody, bullets flying out of the way. I mean, either way, I'm 100% positive somebody knows something. And you already know detectives don't have anything. So like her father said, do the right thing, people. If you have any information that can lead to an arrest, and or conviction in this cold case, this unsolved homicide, please call Baltimore City Cold Case Detectives at 410-396-2100 or you can send a text to 443-902-4824. You can also email them at homicidetips at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous, people. I know somebody got to know something. Once again, I'm going to say it again. That's Baltimore City Cold Case Detectives. That number is 410-396-2100. You can text anonymously to 443-902-4824. You can also email them at homicidetips, that's T-I-P-S, at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous, people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, bizarre episodes. Also, please be sure to check out all of the true crime books that are related to this podcast, which are Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and the upcoming Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 2009-2020. All of these books 
as well as my other true life books, including the bestseller, Junkie, A True Baltimore Story, and Child of Baltimore, are all available on Amazon.com in paperback or as an ebook. Be sure to tune in next week where another high profile, newsworthy, bizarre homicide will be examined and profiled and discussed on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a real life production.